This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 20th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Leading candidates for the presidency are unlikely to take to heart the most important lessons of the last 15 years of American warfare. But those lessons are essential to stemming a rising tide of costly American military intervention across the globe. Chris Preble is one of the editors of our Foreign Policy Choices, Rethinking America's Global Role, a new white paper released this week. There is the superficial sense that there is actually a debate going on in this country about foreign policy, which Donald Trump might have uh, contributed to this sense in one respect or another in terms of some of the things he said along the way about allies, about nuclear weapons, about going after ISIS and the like. Um, but it's our contention that that his views on foreign policy, such as they are, are so utterly incoherent and disconnected to any sort of theory or idea about how the world works, it's, it's just very episodic and all over the place, uh, that w- we may be having a debate, but it's just not a very good one. Uh, and so we're trying to raise the level of discourse uh, and, and talk about these issues in a serious way, in a serious systematic way, a way that approaches individual cases, different problems, different places, but with a common theme of what we call restraint. What is missing from that debate? You said it's incoherent on one side, but the right. other I, side I, seems to be fairly bellicose. I, I think that, I mean, the bellicosity is the one constant, right? So uh, while Donald Trump claims to have been opposed to the Iraq war, even though there's no evidence that he actually was, um, he has said other things on the course of the campaign that sound quite bellicose about going after innocent, not, not being overly concerned about innocent civilians being killed, going after terrorist families and things like that. And you know, bombing the use your preferred expletive, expletive out of them. Uh, that sounds pretty bellicose to me. Uh, it sounds like Hillary Clinton's uh, comment about uh, Muammar Gaddafi: uh, "We came, we saw, he died." Right? This sort of gloating about the ability of the U.S. military to, uh, with not much effort, kill whoever they want, um, and sort of the circumstances afterwards be damned. Uh, uh, and I think that there, so there is a common thread, unfortunately, between these two very, very different candidates, uh, who still, it appears, have uh, very um, uh, interesting, shall we say, ideas about the efficacy of the use of force, in spite of everything that we should have learned over the last fifteen or twenty years. The good news is the American people are pretty uh, clear that they have grave doubts about the ability of the U.S. military to uh, fix the political systems in distant places, uh, especially if they're trying to create a political system like democracy, which took the United States a couple hundred years to perfect. We're still working on it. Um, So the American people are very skeptical of these wars, and I think they do not have, uh, in the two major party candidates, they don't have uh, a candidate that actually represents their views on foreign policy. And We think this paper actually articulates for a lot of Americans uh, what they perhaps feel instinctively but haven't spelled out. The first of these principles is sort of laying out what primacy, that is the main grand strategy, the, the kind of common thread of foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy over the last few decades, what some of the problems of that approach to the world are. Uh, they include sort of uh, ideas about the way the world works that turn out not to be true, uh, ideas about the fragility of the international economic system being dependent upon the U.S. military, uh, on skepticism about encouraging other countries to take greater responsibility for their, their defense. Uh, those ideas are, again, there's a broad bipartisan consensus among elites that argue in favor of this approach to foreign policy, but the public at large is quite skeptical.
then we look at uh, on a case-by-case basis different regions around the world. Obviously, we talk about China, we talk about Russia, we talk about the Middle East and ISIS and Afghanistan, all the things you'd expect. And then we throw in a couple interesting cases that aren't really specific to any region, like questions about cyber, questions about terrorism, questions about nuclear weapons, those sorts of things, uh, which are not, like I say, not unique to a particular region, but but spread across it. And then we close with a chapter on, again, public opinion and how where the American people come down on these issues, and then a chapter that talks about some new criteria that we think would be helpful in guiding our choices. It's called foreign policy choices. That's what the white paper is all about. Uh, that talks about some criteria that we should take into consideration uh, when contemplating the use of force and hopefully uh, bring some uh, greater rigor and skepticism and and therefore fewer instances in which the U.S. military would be used. Not never, of course, because that's not our approach, but uh, just being a little more careful and considered about it. The criteria are consistent with things that I laid out first in the power problem back in 2009. Uh, That is that the first criteria, we send U.S. forces abroad, we should uh, ensure that there is a compelling U.S. national security interest at stake. Uh, Sometimes that's hard to discern, but other times it's not. And when you you hear someone say, we're sending these troops over to this place, even though we have no interest at stake, that's when we should be hitting the panic button. Uh, the second thing is that there should be broad public support for the mission, and that's necessary to sustain it in the event that the mission goes poorly. Um, and there also should be an assessment of the costs. How are we going to pay for them and, and try to establish those costs up front to, again, sort of establish the – uh, the level of public commitment to these missions in the first place. If they're if they're only willing to go into these places on the cheap, uh, what happens when the cheap war turns costly, as many of them do? Uh, another key criteria is if we're asking the military to do something, we should assess the likelihood that they can actually achieve the mission in the time period and the cost that we've stipulated in this broad public debate we should have over it. Uh, and if that seems unlikely, then we probably should revisit the idea in the first place. Uh, don't ask the military to do things that quite literally it isn't prepared to do. And the last thing is uh, it sounds rather, I think, hopefully banal, but War should be a last resort. Civilized nations abhor war for right for all the right reasons, uh, and the fact that we can, the United States of America, can wage war quite easily, um, makes, in some respects, makes it even more important for us to weigh its costs ahead of time. Because uh, very few other countries around the world, uh, so far none to be accurate, uh, have pushed back on uh, frequent U.S. military interventions around the world, and so I think it does require require a certain amount of restraint that is imposed from within by the American people on the elites. You're talking about the U.S. military getting involved in something, but of course the United States is also involved in giving aid and mm-hmm. assistance to militaries around the world right. where we might be concerned about sending U.S. troops. That's right. I mean, I think a big part of my foreign policy approach and ours uh, is the belief that it would be better for the United States and for the world if other countries took greater responsibility for defending themselves and their interests. Uh, if that means sometimes helping these countries to bridge that gap between what the, their current capabilities and where they need to be in the future, I think that's a reasonable debate to have. But of course, there are caveats. Uh, we need to make sure that the partners that we're working with are 
worthy of our resp- uh, of our support. Uh, and sometimes that gets sort of tricky. Uh, and as as uh, you know, my colleague Ted Carpenter and and Malou Innocent published in Perilous Partners, um, there's a long train of of cases where the United States came to regret support for different rulers or different movements uh, that uh, claim to be something. And when speaking before members of Congress uh, or the U.S. news media, but turned out to be something very different uh, when the uh, when the fighting actually started. It seems unlikely that either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton are going to read your paper and then they should. It's they a short should. paper. I, I, it's, com- it's digestible. I commend it to I commend <laughs> it to them to because them. I yes. do know they listen to this yes, podcast of course, so, every day. But where do you hope this awakening about U.S. foreign policy occurs, or where is it most li- most most fertile? First of all, I think we should understand that there are there are more people running than just Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. The two major parties obviously are the dominant voices and they get the most attention. But I think in terms of foreign policy, I think you're likely to see from Gary Johnson and Bill Weld, the two gentlemen running on the Libertarian Party ticket, I think you're likely to see a foreign policy view that's articulated by the two of them that looks pretty close to what we've articulated in our white paper. Not always, but some of the time. And I also think that in a general sense, there is uh, some segment of the U.S. population, not a majority, but a plurality that is more than any other subset that basically agrees. They want the U.S. to be engaged globally. They want us to trade. They want us to interact with others around the world. But they are very skeptical of stupid wars. Uh, and I think that's wise and I think that's useful. Uh, and so helping to give some structure to public sentiment that's a little um, uh, uh, kind of unformed, not uninformed, but, uh, but but sort of you know loose ideas about the way the world works and how the United States operates in it. I, th- I hope that this book will help to bring some uh, uh, some coherence to some of those ideas that are that are drifting around out there. Chris Preble is vice president for defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. He is co-editor of the new white paper, Our Foreign Policy Choices: Rethinking America's Global Role. Available for download at Cato.org.